Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 347 is recorded live October 26, 2017. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the soggy side, the southwest part of Michigan. Joining this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? Well, I'm doing very well, and I was glad to see some sunshine and blue skies today. Yeah, it's been uh, raining pretty hard. And we also have Kevin Ailes joining us today. How are you doing today, Kevin? I am doing most excellent, Darren. Good to be here. And how about yourself? I am doing wonderful. It's good to be Alive and awake in a Thursday evening, recording this wonderful right. podcast. And then we may have Jim show up. He's been having a little bit of issue with his microphone, but uh, if he can make it in, uh, we'll see him shortly. But the days are getting remarkably short. Uh, yeah, it's it's that time of the year where it seems like I get up and I drive into work and it's dark, and when I get off work, it's dark. So I'm assuming there's some sunlight there. Somewhere in a duration. And it looks like we have Jim Schultz joining us. How are you doing today, Jim? I'm doing just great, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. And uh, let's see, thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have a few people who have showed up. We have Eric Roloff is in there, and we also have uh, TKD Derek in the Discord chat, which we're slowly moving towards. Um, I think we'll be doing some testing in the next couple of weeks. We may have audio going in there and then we'll drop the talk shoe portion of it uh kind of on a side note uh the hosting company i that i just got done moving everything over to had a meltdown over the weekend and they've uh, changed their terms of service (laughs) so i'm currently dealing with that so we may have one more move before things are all said and done well let's go ahead and jump right on into the news first up is we have a diving equipment recall must be because Dima's getting close. That's when they, maybe that's when they roll them out. Uh, recalls underway uh, for equipment that might cause the risk of drowning. Ocean Management Systems OMS Airstream Evoke regulators, which are attached to scuba tanks and control pressure, are being recalled. There have been three reports of the units malfunctioning during diving, but no injuries have been reported. Uh, the regulators are sold nationwide by authorized diving unlimited dealers. Online at uh, DiveGearExpress and DiveDOI.com. The regulars are sold between February 2017 and June 2017 for about $500. Uh, And you can search for it, and they've got some specific serial numbers. So if you think you've got one of those, check with your dive shop owner and have them repaired. And uh, one of the websites you can go to is www.DiveDOI.com, and they have some additional information. And then if you've been wondering what's one of the things you can do with some of your dive gear, such as your dive mask, uh, a Florida man used it to rob a speedway. The man was wearing a scuba mask. He used a knife to rob the gas station. I wonder if it was a dive knife. Uh, after being inside for about an hour, the Largo Police Department responded to the silent alarm at the speedway at about 1.22 a.m. on Tuesday. When the officers arrived, they witnessed the man later identified as Jeffrey Chad Davis in action. Uh, Davis, 31, of Clearwater, was unaware the police were outside as he loaded up a cart of merchandise. 
uh, headed outside and was uh, a little bit of a surprise. Uh, tried to re-enter the store. We was apprehended by a canine named Fritz. None of the store employees were harmed, but Davis suffered minor injuries. He was charged with resisting an officer without violence and robbery. Now, I can't see a scuba mask being that much of a, of a disguise. I mean, you still got the you know eye color and hair color and I mean <laughs> facial shape. And, I well, mean, I, the, I a can't. A little bit, but I mean. Is that, I don't think, were they using the goggles or were they using the hood? Let me oh, see. It's that scuba mask and knife. Yeah, but it's, I don't, it doesn't seem about the hood. Yeah, if it was. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the guy probably was from the hood, but I don't think he was using the hood. Yeah, I have no idea what he is. Uh, yeah, you're right. If it was goggles, that's not enough to, yeah. to cover you up. I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of information about robbers not being the, you know, the sharpest crayons in the box, but. Well, scuba mask, that's what they say. And then, yeah. uh, you know, if once you've got the mask and you're part of the way to the, your Halloween costume, so this next article talks about how to make your own Halloween costume. So, uh, you know, how's this sound? Do you, uh, you have to take uh, a couple of two liters, some black paint and types, tights and some tape, uh, black clothes and a beanie, put it all together, and you end up with a dive suit. Anybody up for trying that or? Well, it always helps when you've got a svelte figure, you're a female, and you look pretty good in black. <laughs> yeah. Well, th- I think they could pull it off. Me, I think I'd, I'd have to use, like, a hefty trash bag. and a, you know, the, the, I, I don't think the two liters are going to cut it, though. I mean, what's the volume of a two liter? I mean, that, would, that wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be a believable costume because, you know, you'd only have about, you know, four minutes of bottom time. And I'm assuming she put those two liters on her back. <clears throat> yeah, I, I'm thinking so. I'm having a hard time uh, copying the links for some reason. I apologize to our chat room. Yeah. I've always wanted to do that, though, uh, re- convert an old uh, dive equipment. Yeah, I, I thought maybe I'd sacrifice uh, a wetsuit and uh, you know, go as a, a diving zombie. Or that might sound like a like a post diving accident, perhaps. Yeah, I don't know. I know plenty of folks who could use their diving equipment as a Halloween costume because they're sure not a diver the rest of the year. But well, UK. This is a follow up story. We had this one a little earlier. The UK is offering the famed Arctic shipwreck as exceptional gift to Canada and an act befitting our long shared history and closeness of our current bilateral relationship. The U.K. has announced they'll give Canada the recovered shipwrecks of John Franklin, a British explorer who sought to chart an unnavigated section of the Northwest Passage in the Arctic in the 1840s and died in the attempt along with all his crew. This exceptional arrangement will recognize the historic significance of the Franklin expedition to the people of Canada and will ensure that these wrecks and artifacts are conserved for future generations. This according to the British Defense Minister Michael Fallon. And it was issued in a statement on Tuesday. More than half a century, the resting place of the two vessels remained a mystery until a team of archaeologists found and identified the HMS Erebus in 2014. Just two years later, researchers acted on a tip from an Inuit man to find the HMS Terror, the the flagship of Franklin's 1845 expedition, sitting perfectly preserved in nearby water of King William's Island. Reported at the time, the HMS Erebus was found the Toronto Star explained the enduring riddle the Franklin's Doom expedition has represented. 
this was a great mystery of the 19th century, certainly for the British novelist Dan Summons, who wrote the fictional account of the expedition, told NPR's Rachel Martin last year. They kept hunting for all those lost ships for the rest of the century, right up to the 20th century. That did not prevent British from pretending, oh, pretending, preparing for the possibility of the discovery. In 1997, before the wreck was even found, the U.K. and Canadian governments negotiated over who would get them. Assuming they ever resurfaced, the British defense minister said at the time the two countries agreed Canada would get custody and control of the wrecks and their contents, while U.K. would retain ownership of them. Now they serve as an exceptional gift to Canada. The transfer of ownership is expected to be undertaken over the coming weeks, the ministry adds. Now, did they change their mind in their actually transferring the ownership, or is it ownership but not ownership? I mean, that's what I found confusing. I read reread this article three or four times. So Canada has custody and control of the wrecks and the contents, and the U.K. retains the ownership, but now they say that they, the transfer of ownership will be completed in the next couple of weeks. Um, yeah, but, I mean, it's not like they're going to raise the wrecks. I mean, I suppose it probably the ownership would control what artifacts are removed. Well, is ownership in part liability? I mean, not that I can think there's any liability with it, but... Well, if, if you're going to preserve, any, preserve anything and maintain protection from it, that's a liability. The only liability, economic-wise. Yeah. And then we have an article from the Manitowoc Herald Times reporter, uh... And it's a little critical of NOAA and the NOAA Lake Michigan Maritime Sanctuary about federal control of the Great Lakes. And uh, what they're saying is that this uh, column is in response to uh, an October 22nd column where it said the marine sanctuary has a positive, positive impact in Alpena. And so the, the writer said, I did visit Alpena and Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary in 2017, I'd like to address the Alpena residents' recent comments regarding the Michigan Sanctuary. They praise the NOAA Sanctuary impact of the economy and the quality of life. On my four-day visit, I stayed at the home of on Long Lake. Of the 12 housing options I researched in Alpena, only two noted the sanctuary existed. The 10-mile drive on Highway 23 to Alpena disclosed blighted structures in ill repair and unkept yards, etc., Downtown looked tired, some empty storefronts. There were dated coffee shop, a couple of restaurants that blended in with everything else, a typical fast food outlying town. Uh, there's a little evidence in uh, amenities, the so-called 100,000 annual visitors. Perhaps the sanctuary helped Alpena, but like Ozarki, Sheboygan, Manitowoc, counties are vivid contrast to Alpena. They're filled with thriving cities and burbs that already cater to tourists. Though a fully developed freeway system and located an hour from Milwaukee, Alpena is a four-and-a-half-hour drive from any large city, Detroit. Proactive chambers, tourism bureaus, nonprofits, volunteers, which support amenities, retail, cultural attractions, lively lakefronts, events, and festivals, and robust and generous businesses, industries, University of Wisconsin, and local college. We do this without major federal intervention control and dubious tax dollars. Simply put, the sanctuary has a positive impact on our economy and the quality of life while helping protect the Great Lakes and their rich history. Why doesn't the word shipwreck appear in their letter? As suspected, NOAA, National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, narrow focus on protecting shipwrecks has little indeed to do with the sanctuary. And NOAA's sanctuary is about illegal federal control of freshwater Great Lakes. 
In 17 years, no one the authors have erased the, the reason for the sanctuary take, takeover, replacing shipwrecks with landward education, technology competitions, etc. These are progressive and create protections, but all can be achieved without NOAA controlling 4,300 square miles of Lake Huron. Wisconsin's lakes and shipwrecks are already protected by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, U.S. Park Service, National Guard, and the Wisconsin Historical Society. A NOAA sanctuary here is a redundant waste of taxpayer money. From research to education, the sanctuary's programs are top-notch and bring national attention to Lake Huron. They don't cite one program. NOAA has not outlined the research education benefits for Wisconsin. However, our Wisconsin Historical Society is a 40 plus years of diving and keeping an inventory and protective history of a shipwreck's marine history. The programs today draw 170,000 annual visitors. NOAA praises the Wisconsin Historical Society. The quality and output is equivalent to NOAA's own work in Alpena. The NOAA sanctuary is redundant. Uh, and then NOAA's Great Lakes Maritime Her- uh, Heritage Culture is a cultural attraction for locals and tourism will be 100,000 visitors a year. Uh, I visited the Clean Educational Free Center after announcing in June that Sheboygan, not NOAA, would build a visitor center museum. The executive director of the Wisconsin Maritime Museum in Manitowoc told me in August that plans have been scrapped so much for 100,000 visitors a year. Some of us are shoreline property owners. There's no comparison between Wisconsin Repetarian laws and those in Michigan. The sanctuary's potential impact in Wisconsin is large legal prom- problematic issue for our citizens and sovereignty of our state. Uh, 2014 intentional underwater robotics competition brought 59 teams from 13 countries to Alpena, more than a thousand people in attendance at the event. Alpena is a population of 10,400 and Two Rivers population of 11,712. The Kites Over Lake Michigan Festival draws about 30,000 people uh, from the Toshita Beach each year. Should no maritime sanctuary prevail, the future activities of the beach over Lake Michigan will be subject to federal scrutiny, special use permission, other federal oversights, regulations, and costs. And then they go on, and he, he goes point by point what this, uh, some of the locals in Alpena had, had said about it. Well, yeah, but this is an extremely biased article. You know, again, yeah. I mean, there's, there's talk of a... Obviously, there is talk of a NOAA sanctuary going in in Wisconsin waters, okay? Clearly, this is a Wisconsin outfit that does not want that happening in Wisconsin. So they're doing everything they can to pick apart NOAA there in Alpena. Well, you know, I, clearly this guy hasn't been to the same Alpena I have because, you know, no, it's not some little ramshackle town. It's actually a, a, a nice little burb. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's very touristy. has a lot of tourist people in it. Uh Downtown area, you know, you do see signs and, and a lot of. It, it's really hard to be downtown and not be well aware of the NOAA Shipwreck Museum down there. Uh, the NOAA Shipwreck Museum, by the way, is free. Uh, it has quite a bit of people coming in and out of there. The uh, gift shop, um, looking at the cost of the of the, uh, the items in the gift shop, they're not making any money on this stuff. You know, you, you keep walking out of there with a pretty nice little, uh, um, you know, Marine Sanctuary's jacket for about twenty two bucks. Okay. Uh, you know, they sell tumblers in there for less than $10. I mean, they're not making any money at this place. Clearly, they have some influx of, you know, federal dollars supporting this deal here. Uh, you know, I know that different outfits aren't really happy with, uh, you know, having NOAA come in because, you know, they've got a lot of power and then they do take over an awful lot of stuff. But, uh, you know, that is, I don't know, I mean, I really enjoy seeing what NOAA is doing 
up there in Alpena. If anyone has dove out of Alpena, it's nice. I mean, the, the, the wrecks are all buoyed. Even the deep water wrecks are buoyed up there. Um, you know that they there's a outfit running a shipwreck tour out of the museum there. It's actually, the same group which runs the shipwreck tours out of Munising. Um, you know, they I don't know if how, how how many tickets are selling on them there, but, but when I've been on them, they, they've been full boats. Of course, it was during, during tourist season. Uh, you know, I think it has a very positive impact in the community over there. Um, you know, I'm quite fond of the Noah Museum up there. You know, if they put another one over there in Wisconsin, I'd go see that one too. I think Alpine's a little bit more than 10,000 people they're talking about. I mean, it's a good-sized town. Um, I don't know what the stats are on it there. Maybe someone could pull them up if they want. But, yeah, yeah, very, very biased article against they just don't want Noah coming in, in, into their neighborhood. All right? Yeah. The, and, the, the other article that they were referring to uh, was written, they've got a quite a byline, and let me say what that is. Uh, it was written by Chuck Weinson, a board chairman of the Friends of Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary, Carol Shafto, a chairman of Thunder Bay Sanctuary Advisory Committee, Beach Hall, former mayor of Roger City, Prestique Isle County, Don McMaster, Ph.D., presiding Alpena College, Community College, uh, John McVetty is retired CEO of Alpena Medical Center, Matt uh, Walgoria of Alpena Mayor, Jim uh, Clarich, Executive Director of Target Alpena Development Corporation, Jackie Krauszak, uh, President CEO of Alpena Chamber of Commerce, and Gentry, Executive Director for Alpena Downtown Development. So, uh, and and that article is pretty positive. I mean, here's one of the things uh, that they talk about, and I'll read just the beginning. Uh, we'll have links to that article in the show notes. As Alpena residents living near the shores of the Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary find ourselves having a strong reaction to comments made about TBNMS and recent guest auditorials regarding the proposed Wisconsin Lake Michigan National Marine Sanctuary, uh, the TBNMS has been a significant part of the community now for 17 years, and I think that's Thunder, Day, Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary. Uh, having experienced community opposition, NOAA's proposed designate Thunder Bay in the late 1990s, we are in a position to reflect on what sanctuary means in northeast Michigan. Fears of the federal government intrusion never became a reality. Instead, whether you talk to fifth graders, parents, teachers, business owners, or water sports and fishing enthusiasts, you'll find that they will most likely hear the Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary is one of the best things to happen to Alpena. We say that ourselves, and we hear it often. Simply put, sanctuary has a positive impact on our economy, quality of life, while helping protect the Great Lakes and its rich history. And then they go down, and some of the points were referenced in the uh, last article. Mm-hmm. You know, and Alpena, I, I would go so far as to say it is due to the presence of NOAA, uh, does have you know, a substantial uh, dive community up there. You know, it, you know, for the, okay, they say that the, the town only has 10,000 residents. Well, they've also got two dive shops, two well-functioning dive shops in Alpena. Uh, you know, there's one I can't think of the name of right there by the NOAA Museum, and then you've got Thunder Bay Scuba, which has been up there for years and years uh, doing dive charters. I, I think there's several charters up there, but I know that uh, Thunder Bay Scuba does, does a real good charter out of there. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, for when you look at the other, uh, you know, port cities where people like to dive out of, just the fact that you can have two good, strong dive shops right there in Alpena, uh, you know, Thunder Bay Scuba has been around for quite a while. Uh, yeah. Doing well, um, they, 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 you know, we don't we don't see that around here. Um, to, to tell me a tell me a port city that has two thriving dive shops in it. 
Okay. Or, or, or any city here outside possibly Detroit, you know, but or Chicago. You know, you got to go to go to, to large towns and start talking about having large uh, dive shops like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, or are they are they there because of shipwrecks, or they're there because of a preserve by name? Well, I would imagine both. I mean, uh, you know, having the preserve there, uh, you know, we would think would attract a lot of scuba divers. But then we also see it where we have other preserves here in the state of Michigan, which uh, do not have thriving dive shops in them. Mm -hmm. So just the fact that the uh, Thunder Bay Preserve, you know, and I don't don't know how big of a city Alpena is. I'm going to say it's more than 10,000. I mean, it's not as big as Kalamazoo, but it's, uh, you know, certainly bigger than Goebbels. It's it's a good size. uh, I'll I'll pull the stats on it here in a bit, in a minute here. But uh, it's, you know, to have... That much of the way of diving attractions there between the shipwreck tours and two dive shops and the uh, the Noah Museum. But there's also there too, which I haven't been to the city museum, but I understand there are some uh, shipwreck exhibits even in, in, in that museum as well. So, uh, you know, and why not? It, it, it's a marvelous place to dive. And one nice thing about Alpena is uh, you know you have uh, mostly sand and gravel bottom, uh, which gives you great visibility. Uh, I've never had less than, well, I'll, I'll take that back, I'll take that back. If, if you dive right there by the, the mouth of the river, uh, a couple of wrecks out there, the, the Bissell, and, um, I was a couple of miles by the mouth of the river, don't don't bother. <laughs> you know, those are braille dives. But then you're, you're basically diving in the river there, too. But, yeah. you know, you have, uh, you know, wrecks of all different varying abilities up there, you know, like, you know, Camlin's Barge, nice little 30-foot dive, deep dive with, you know, 40-foot visibility, uh, I don't know. There's just so much to see out there, and, and wrecks of, of all depths. You know, you've got stuff, you got stuff you can snorkel all the way out to uh, you know deep water trimix dives. Yeah. Uh, my, my bottom comment is it's the quality of the wrecks. It's why you can support two dive shops. It's not because it's a sanctuary or any of the other. You got the shipwrecks; they will come. If they're buoyed or not, yep. you will go there. We can we can hear you. You'll have the GPS coordinates. Yeah, the pop- yeah I, I lost my audio for a while. I was going to try to comment. Uh, I seem to take a different perspective on this than Kevin does. Um, my feeling is everything that Noah has, the museum that Noah built could have been built anywhere. It didn't have to be at the preserve. And those shipwrecks were buoyed long before that was a underwater preserve. I mean, I'll take the Straits of Michigan and Straits of Mackinac. Beautiful shipwrecks, loads of divers, supports multiple dive shops, and Noah's not involved there. So, you know, if Noah wants to bring education about the Great Lakes or about underwater, they can do it without taking possession and control of the area. What have they done to preserve any of the shipwrecks that are there? You know, how many shipwrecks has Noah gone out and found in that area? Well, I believe they just found the uh, Choctaw and the uh, Ohio just in the Was that Noah or was that independent? Oh, I believe I got the article right here, which actually this is an Alpena newspaper while I was passing this spring. Uh, I picked up uh, the front page of the Choctaw and the Ohio. Um, and okay, I'm scanning to the article. This is from the news, uh, 
Northeastern Michigan's newspaper. This is a Saturday, Sunday edition, September 2nd, 2017. Front page is about the Ohio and Choctaw. Looking to see who found that. Okay. Well, I guess I could sing. Image courtesy of Thunder Bay Sanctuary NOAA. A lot of this information comes from NOAA. Yeah. Exactly. Who's credited with the find? I, I had heard that that Noah had found them. That's what I was going on, but I'm not actually. Well, we can we can also find that. Uh, I'm I'm sure we'll have people who will write in and let us know, and then we can do some research in the off week. Uh, the population yeah. of Alpena uh, as of uh, 2016 was 10,122. Now, one thing I've noticed about population because I was doing some looking here at the the town because we're you know if you ask me where where i'm from i say bering springs and the population the bering springs is about uh 1800 but when you include in orinoco township which is outside of town if you ask people where they live they're going to say bering springs but orinoco township's 8000 people mm-hmm. so uh, so you've got you've got the population and you've got the you know of of a specific city or town and then you've got the area uh, and you know that can be a, a little different. I've got the answer to uh, Jim's question here about who found the, those two shipwrecks. There is uh, funded by a grant from NOAA's Office of Ocean Exploration and Research. The project was made possible through research partnerships with NOAA's Great Lakes Environmental Research Laboratory, University of Delaware, Michigan Technological University, Northwest Michigan College, and Department of Natural Resources. So uh, Noah was certainly involved in finding those wrecks. So. Well, they provided some funding. Yeah. yeah. Well, funding is where it starts. I mean. So. Yeah. Population of the county in Alpena is about 30,000. So, yeah. uh, and, I, and I think that's that's kind of what we're seeing all over is that you have, you know, uh, the the population specific unit of uh, government is is different than really what the community is, uh, uh, but then it, then it comes down. I mean, yeah, I, I, where I, where I have a problem, and this is me on my soapbox, just on government in general, is we tax from local citizens to send it to a federal government so that they can decide to do something with it and then send the money back, and then we should be grateful. Uh, so I just. You know, when you have all this overlap, I think you know if it's a, if it's a if it's something that needs to be done and there's nothing else doing it, then fine. But if you've got local support who can handle it, what is the federal government going to offer you that you can't do locally? If you have the local support that that is sustaining and continue, continues, uh, you know, we we've seen that where local support can rather ebb and flow. Um, you know, it's a shame that you know we're you know, we, we the, the, the main the answer here is we need to get more people involved in diving. You know, whether you want to support it being done with no no NOAA support protecting the wrecks, which, as Eric is pointing out in the chat room here, that uh, the sanctuary isn't going to stop people from taking stuff off the wrecks. Thank you, Eric. That's very true. Uh, you know, only thing that we're going to be able to do to influence people taking things off the wrecks or protecting the wrecks is we need more divers, and we need to educate divers, uh, you know, the importance of not disturbing the wrecks, of, you know, uh, what is called low-impact diving, of uh, 
you know, not hooking the wreck, of uh, you know, you know, trying to keep these things as intact as we possibly can. Uh, you know, getting more people involved and convincing your, your buddies to leave the stuff alone is, you know, sad to say. You know, there's still a lot of people taking things off the wrecks, and I understand Max's point of view in that if things weren't taken off, they'd, they'd be lost forever, never seen. But now we have a lot of people who, who are diving these simply that they just, they just want to see them. And it does, you know, make a dent in what you see. I, I, I mean, you know, I, this summer I was able to dive a wreck for the first time, which, which had, had the, the ship's wheel still on. And this wreck still had the bell on it. And, you know, was a completely untouched wreck. And to see that, uh, you know, it's a good thing I was on the breather because I was huffing and puffing because this was cool. This was cool. This was cool, you know. But you just don't see that because that stuff is gone. And we just really need to make an effort of, you know, peer pressure. Telling our friends, hey, it's, it might have been cool back in the 80s and the 90s when it was legal. But, uh, you know, today it isn't. So uh, let's leave it alone. You know, take some pictures and uh, move on. Now, the, the, that article did mention a number of different uh, outfits that were protecting the wrecks. But, you know, the, the only outfit that I've personally seen protecting the wrecks from the DNR has been a little bit awkward, you know, just in the last year. Uh, yeah. I've seen that the DNR has been out checking boats. You know, yeah. uh, I, I came in from South Haven from out diving Boltima's Barge, and the DNR was going through my boat. You know, I'm like, hey, go ahead. Take a look, man. <laughs> You're not going to find anything there, you know. But, uh, you know, as we were up there diving the... Uh, what was it? The Vienna. I was on a SAS dive up there uh, summer before last. Well, last summer, I guess, a year ago. And here comes the DNR boat. And uh, Yuka Hanukova's boat was out there as well. And uh, she was real impressed with them wanting to board her boat. I mean, not that she had anything to hide, but nothing at all like that. But uh, I got pictures of that one, too. <laughs> that was kind of cool. But, uh, you know, like I say, the only ones I'm seeing out there who are doing any effort to police these things are, are the DNR. Well, there's here. Here's this next article has a, a, another approach to protecting historic resources, and let's see. This one is WFSU uh, underwater archaeologists turn to scuba divers to help monitor historic resources. Florida coastlines and cavern systems are dotted with historic sites from World War II era shipwrecks to Spanish galleons to remnants of a thousand-year-old civilizations, but there aren't enough archaeologists to keep up with the underwater preservation. Now the state is training amateur scuba divers to pick up some of the slack. Dellen Scott Ayrton is on a mission to teach Floridans what underwater archaeology is. First lessons, it's not the study of dinosaurs. She helps run the Florida Public Archaeology Network, where she trains volunteers in marine preservation. Just like our colleagues on land, we lay out square grids underwater. We use PVC. We evaluate in layers. Just like our colleagues on land, we're taught to take very careful notes and recordings, she said. Now, she's giving a room full of hobbyists, scuba divers, a crash course in monitoring underwater historic sites. It's part of the Submerged Sites Education Archaeological Stewardship Program, or SSEAS, SEAS. She says non-disturbance is key. We're not going to be distributing Disturbing the bottom sediments, we won't be excavating, we're going to be recording whatever is sticking above the seafloor, she said. And so it's really easy ways to do that, and it's always the first thing archaeologists do on any shipwreck site is figure out what we have there. What's the bow, what's the stern, how big is it, and the stuff that we can use as we are archaeologists to help them with. Florida has 12 designated shipwreck preserves, 
sort of underwater state parks as well as many historic structures near archaeological sites, thousands of which are threatened by sea level rise. So this is a real world needed work that archaeologists can't just can't get to because they're tasked with 9,000 other things. The ships need monitoring for littering and looting, plaques need cleaning, and the research team needs volunteers to measure and document the sites. If we hear about something that uncovers on the beach or in the water, we get a report. I may not be able to get to uh, Brantonton Beach tomorrow, but I know who I can call in Brantonton and say, grab the seas diver, go out, take this for me. So that's what I'm hoping we can do for you all as well, she said. The next step is for students to test out their knowledge. And then uh, the article goes on. She starts getting into some specifics. But, Mac, do you remember an article we had years ago where they had something like this in place and then the state shut it down because the divers weren't commercial divers? I can't remember the specifics for that, but I know under the classification of scientific divers, which are generally affiliated with a university or a college, so it's part of their training, um, I don't remember anything like that and being shut down. Yeah, I think I think what it was is there was, uh, and it may, might not be these archaeological sites, but they they had uh, some of these uh, uh, parks, uh, like they had an underwater observation window, so volunteers would take a scrubby brush and clean the glass and maybe clean the outside of the habitat or something. And they were, somebody had instructed them they couldn't do that anymore because that was actually a, uh, required a commercial certification. Uh, but it, it's been a while, and I, and I can't remember. But that's what I'm wondering is, if, is this because she's providing training? I mean, are these people going to get a little bit of extra certification because of this? Uh, so well, one would hope so. Scientific diver is one, and it goes along with that as archaeology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this is something I've thought of for a long time that, that makes sense. Uh, if you have people willing to do it, I think sometimes there's a, a thought that, you know, nobody's allowed to touch it except for a select few. And then, you know, if, if they're too busy or not funded, then nobody else, you know, should be just locked off and you can't get to it. And it sounds like this uh, group has, has realized that if you're not going to use these divers as volunteers, uh, you've got too big a task to, to do any other way. Well, I know of a group looking for some volunteer divers, if you wouldn't mind me getting in a plug here. Well, go for it. Okay. Uh, it's for West Michigan Adaptive Diving. Uh, yes. I'm going to read to you an email, well, a message I got from Larry Sanders. Uh, Larry is involved with the Michigan Preserve System, but I don't believe this is actually associated with the Michigan Preserve System here. Uh, but he contacted me last week in, in need of a, few, of a few divers. Okay, I'm going to read to you what he sent me. Uh, Larry Sanders here. I'm writing to ask your help with something. I'm involved with a group called West Michigan Adaptive Diving. I'm going to share their uh, Facebook pages into the chat rooms here. I'm posting and talk show there. It goes into uh, Discord. Hey, West Michigan Adaptive Diving. We offer handicapped people an opportunity to use scuba in a pool setting. We have a clinic coming up in December at the East Grand Rapids High School pool in cooperation with Mary Freebed Hospital. We have all sorts of disabilities, missing limbs, paralysis, limited cognition, and then more. We need volunteers. We need a, a few divers who are trained. Wait, wait, we have a few divers who are trained to work with, with, with our people. We need some more to assist those trained divers, plus some who can assist with snorkeling. We can also use non-divers for registration and gearing up. Uh, 
goes on a little bit more about where the equipment is coming from and different things here and there. Uh, this is an event going on at the East Grand Rapids High School on uh, December 16th. Yeah, yeah East, East Grand Rapids Pool at the Senior High School. Uh, going on from 8 to 8.30 a.m. Anyone who's interested can reach Larry at straightsdiver at hotmail.com. That's straightsdiver at hotmail.com. Uh, you can also be contacted at 616-402-0493. Uh, say he, like up to a dozen people, uh, six of them need to be divers. Uh, the other six, uh, not necessarily. Uh, it'd be good to be a little familiar with scuba equipment, but not necessarily a diver. There will, you know, need people for uh, helping with registration and gearing and things. Uh, I believe he, since we last spoke, he has two at this point. Uh, we've got over you know, six weeks until this event. It'd be nice to, you know, a lot of folks would like to uh, dive with a purpose, and uh, this sounds like a good time. So I'm, I'm going to try to make it. Unfortunately, this being, I'm a, I'm a letter carrier. And this is a few days before Christmas, and my work is likely to mandate me, and there's nothing I can do about that. So I plan to be there, but I can't promise being there, unfortunately. Yeah. The chat room is saying November 16th. Is is this an, another date? November 16th. I, I have December 16th. Okay. I'm trying to get the Facebook page to load, but it's running a little slow. It is December 16th, 2017. That's the date that uh, Larry gave me here. Okay. And I'm pulling up their Facebook page, which uh, oh, I I my I'm just reading wrong. It is no, November sixteenth. Why did I say? No, no, no it's, it's December sixteenth. You said what date? Uh, December sixteenth, oh, twenty seventeen. December. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Just Dece- that's, that's what I got. Yeah. Are, are you seeing a this a different someplace? Uh, the somebody in the chat room just said it was November sixteenth, but uh, either way, we haven't passed that date. For some reason, I was thinking the date may have passed, but we're still in October yet. Can't, can't get yeah. rid of the the season that quick. Uh, so yeah, well, I mean, we, we've got a good six, this is a good six weeks out here. So uh, you know, uh, nice to be put together a, a few divers for this guy here. Uh, you know, I'd say get get a hold of Larry at you know, that Straits Diver. I don't want to misquote his email here. I have a habit of too detailed backwards time to time. Yeah. So, I'll, I'll also write something in the chat room as well. Yeah. It's Straits Diver at Hotmail dot com. Okay. So if you're interested, it sounds like a very worthy cause. Yeah. And I'm gonna I'm gonna try to be there, but I can't promise it. But uh, let's say if we, you know, we need a number more divers and you know quite a bit of surface support. It sounds like too. Yeah. And that's uh, the West Michigan Adaptive Diving. Uh, if you're on Facebook and you do a search for that, their mm-hmm. Facebook page will come up. Yeah, I posted a link in the chat room. But yes, it's West Michigan Adaptive Diving. And it uh, looks like their goal is to get uh, folks with all sorts of disabilities in the water. Uh, looks like the volunteers are going to be getting a uh, free, face, free uh, full-face scuba mask out of the deal, too. Seeing that here in the email. You know, we discussed the full-face scuba mask on the podcast about six weeks ago, wasn't it? So. Yep. Okay. So uh, next up we have a discovery, a rare solar navigation tool found in the ancient shipwreck. The device was found in a ship that once belonged to a fleet led by Vasco de Gama uh, during Europe's golden age of exploration. Uh, its 500-year-old copper disc was discovered among remnants in a shipwreck off the coast of Amman. In 2014, archaeologists, archaeologists suspected it was a navigation tool called an astrolab 
Now, thanks to 3D scanning technology, scientists were able to see small faded measurements etched in the disk, which confirmed that it is, in fact, an astrolab. It is now thought to be the earliest such find from a period known as the European Age of Exploration. The disk was found on a shipwreck called the Esmeralda, which belonged to a fleet led by Portuguese explorer Vasco de Gama. During his search for the route from Europe to India in 1502 through 1503, in 2014, a team of excavators led by marine scientist David L. Mearns and his company Blue Water Discoveries Limited loosened the astrolab from the sand covering hundreds of other relics that sat in the seafloor. In an interim report they published last year in the find in the International Journal of Nautical Archaeology, they theorized the disc was used for navigation. A Portuguese royal coat of arms was visible on the disc top half, and the bottom was etching of an arm armillary sphere, which Mearns claimed belonged to the Portuguese King Dom Miguel. These etchings indicated the archaeologist that the object was a high-status object aboard the Esmeralda. Willie's marking suggests the disc was used for navigation means, and his team needed more proof before they could declare it with certainty. So that's a, that's a nice image they have in this article. Mm-hmm. And then you can yes. see those lines just like you'd expect on, the, on an astrolab. It's quite interesting what they're doing with the 3D scanning. Yeah. Yeah, because many times they're encrusted with uh, other uh, marine buildup, uh, minerals, uh, dead sea creatures, and uh, it can sometimes remove some of those layers virtually without altering the object. So um, while it takes a long time for conservation, so it lets you get something out of the water fairly quickly and, and get a scan, even though this did take a couple of years. Uh, and the article goes into some detail, some other stuff that was found there. But that's a, a nice find. I'd, I'd love to come across one. I, I don't think we're going to find one here in the Great Lakes. Yeah, probably not. But we've got plenty of other stuff to find out there. And then I how, just keep looking for that UFO, and that'll supersede any of the other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> we find that uh, your, your, your name will be remembered for a long time. Uh, and we have a ship that dates back to... Uh, the times of Genghis Khan, or his descendants, when they ruled China, archaeologists have under, uncovered a shipwreck buried in the silt and mud that dates back around 700 years to a time when the descendants of Genghis Khan ruled China, sometimes from their palace at Xanadu. Although China was ruled by the Mongols, Chinese culture flourished at this time, and the art and artifacts found in the 70-foot-long, 21-meters wooden shipwreck shows motifs that were popular in China. These include colorful jar-depicting dragon and Phoenix, the ship, which archaeologists believe was one used for river journeys, was found in a modern-day construction site and had a hull section in the 12 cabins by 12 bulkheads, wrote the team of archaeologists, by, uh, led by Chungan Wang of the Shandong Institute of Cultural Relics and Archaeology in a paper published recently in the Journal of Chinese Cultural Relics, dating back to the Yang Dynasty circa 1271 through 1368, the ship held a shrine, a captain's cabin, crew quarters, cargo compartments, control room that doubled as a kitchen, the archaeologists said in their papers. In the cabin that was used as a shrine, archaeologists found an incense burner, stone carvings, figurines, air hats in which Buddhism are individuals who have attained enlightenment. The figurine showed seemingly tame dragons and tigers sitting peacefully beside the air hats. I'm looking at that boat, and I wish they had something standing next to it, because it doesn't look that big, does it? No, it does not. It looks almost like a canoe. Parts and pizzas. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, 
I mean, it's still cool to find, but I'm I'm having a hard time uh, visualizing it. Maybe they could have done a drawing or something. Yeah, it'd be nice to have something for scale reference there. Well, that does it for Scuba in the News. Thank everybody for listening. If you want to give us some feedback, you can send us email at the show at scubaobsessed.com. We're on Facebook. Facebook page is uh, www.facebook.com forward slash scubaobsessed on Twitter at scubaobsessed. And as always, you want to go visit the website, www.scubaobsessed.com. And while you're there, why don't you give us a little bit of uh, monetary funds, uh, show your appreciation for the show. And that will help us uh, keep going. We're running on to that renewal time of the year where we need to get things going with our hosting provider, which I had funds with this last weekend. Uh, They were having some growing pains, so to speak. Uh, Also, we have some subscribers who are showing up in our subscriber list, but I'm guessing cards have probably expired or changed dates, so they're not going through. So you may think you're donating to the show and and your card may have may not be so if you haven't seen those funds deposited uh take a peek and uh re-up your account if you could it'd be certainly appreciated this helps us uh keep the show going and improve things as we are wanted to do well anybody get any diving in i think i saw that uh lake michigan uh was ventured on this last weekend yeah we got out on sunday i took four divers down to the Fisherman's Reef, and they got a chance to do a little more exploring of that very interesting geological formation. And I got out again today for a little while just to do a quick recovery dive in Lake Michigan. Might be the last time to get wet is out this year, but we'll wait and see. Yeah. I, I hear some rumblings that there will be snow coming down in the next seven days. Well, it is the end of October, and we usually do get at least one snowfall before Thanksgiving. Yep. It doesn't last, but it generally covers up all the leaves for a few hours. Seems too early. Well, it's just, you know, we've had a nice fall. You know, summer kind of hung on quite a while this year, and we had we had many 80-degree days here in the end of October. Yep. So uh, well, weather's going to change and quite quickly on us, and, yeah, we are fair game for snow. Yeah. Oh, I had frost on the windshield this morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little bit up here, too, and, hey, that just means that that should knock down the bugs. So hopefully we've had our last mosquito bites for the year. Ooh, that'd be nice. I sure hope so. Mm-hmm. Mac, have you been watching the river at all? Has that been uh, flowing yeah, pretty heavy? The river heavy? Is, not, is not very good right now. Um, just the creek down here by my house is seven foot over the banks. Ouch. There's a, yeah, there's a, a ditch you got to go down that's over seven foot high, and it's past that. It's... Uh, Another three feet before you hit the road, but seven feet is a lot. Yeah. Yeah, both of the local sewer plants uh, had runoff issues or oh. overflow issues. Uh, well, there's rain we had in the last week or so, so I've been avoiding any river dives myself. Yeah, yeah Mac, I, I know what you're talking about. I think you're talking about that creek there that, that crosses Cleveland, aren't you? Hickory Creek? I'm not sure the name of it, but yes, that is the one by Cleveland because it goes all the way up through Stevensville. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and the, that I mean that is raging actually right now. Yeah, that's uh, because the, there's a one spot where we where I see it where it crosses uh, underneath Cleveland Road, and there's this large valley or ravine, 
and the creek is just a little bit in the valley. And you see why that valley's there this week is that you can't tell where the where the the creek bed is. It's uh, the whole valley's a little soggy and filled up. And then by my work, we have Hickory Creek, and that is uh, just completely uh, flooded, which it's not unusual. I don't know if they, the two connect. I'm sure they must, or if they're the same. Well, it did not help the uh, visibility one iota. Yeah, this is going to keep things. Uh, I mean, it might move some of the leaves down, but uh, it's not going to give us much relief. And I have a feeling by the time this clears up, we'll be uh, battling ice on the on the shores. Well, even so, it may, but we may get some ice, but it's not going to be around for long. I mean, we'll get warm ups and thaws. Our our season is not done. It just means we're going to be using the dry suits here pretty soon. Yeah. This makes I, the only reason I didn't get out today is because I didn't have a buddy to dive with, <laughs> and my back zipper does not allow me to do it myself. Mm. Because you're right, I'm, it's, it's conversion time. Yeah, you gotta find. You gotta hey. find go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just gonna say you gotta find somebody who can uh, get out during the week. How about all these other retired uh, divers? You can't, you can't crowd one of those in to to go and during a work day. Mm. Most of those were retired have got part-time jobs that are more than their full-time jobs. <laughs> I, I got I got two I'm thinking of right now. Yeah, it seems most retired folks I know are, you know, cramming in almost as much stuff as I am. So. <laughs> I, I managed to get one dive in. Um, okay. Kind of lame for me. I don't know. Uh, I got. I, I was called to do a, uh, a cell phone recovery. It ended up just being a search, not a recovery. A uh, gentleman had contacted me on Facebook and, you know, I, Met him out to a uh, little pawpaw. Uh, did some poking around out there in the mud. Maybe something to where he thought it was. And I did a very thorough search in that area. Come up with, uh, I don't know, lots of, lots of snails and clams and, uh, you know, kids' toys and <laughs> customary beer cans. Did not find a golf ball. So I'm not sure I can even log this dive, you know. But no, no. Uh, I spent about 30 minutes, maximum depth of about 18 feet, uh, you know. A decent visibility. I was kind of surprised when I got on the bottom. You know, max visibility was probably eight, ten feet down there, which is pretty good for an evening for a getting pretty kind of dusky dive this time of year. Lots of big fish. Um, no, no cell phone. Cell phone been down there for a long time anyway. Probably wouldn't have been uh, a very viable candidate for repair or anything. Mm-hmm. You know, he, I think he might he might recover the photos off it there. He had some connections on that, but no, it was a nice evening for a dive. Yeah. That that, gives that's ex- a nice place, but I have a story there that might give you pause. Oh, I got out there with all my fingers. What 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 should I have been worried about? That is the only lake around here I have dove in, and you know how you find bait on hooks. You know what they're fishing for. That's yeah. the only time I have ever found an alligator used as bait. So when I got back up, I kept thinking, "What the hell are they fishing for using an alligator for bait?" <laughs> how, how big of an alligator it was a baby one maybe seven eight inches long obviously <laughs> dead it was not a, a play one i mean it was a real alligator it had the line on them a hook under the belly um did not have weights on it had a bobber that was way insufficient but mm-hmm. i got that and it's like you get it and you're looking at it wondering is this a real one and then the second idea is what are they fishing for? And then <laughs> you look the, around. What is there? Mm-hmm. Well, I uh, lost I, I lost my freshwater shark, and I need to get it back. <laughs> well, it's good that you guys slammed up this up 
after my dive. Might not have been a dive if I heard about it beforehand, but uh, I don't know. He was want, trying to want guy was wanting me to try to get in the spring, and I'm not real enthused about it. For hearing these stories, guys. As an old story, about 30, 35 years ago, a group of divers from a different area came through both Big Pawpaw and Little Pawpaw, and they got permission from all the owners. They had a homeowner association back then, <clears throat> and their objective was to find old motors, and they did very well because they did a very thorough check from that uh, public access all the way down around the – there's a big curve in the river there or the in the lake – and they've made a number of really, really good finds, but you're talking 35 years ago. So the motors they picked up were quite, quite old. And if you've ever gone to the antique motor show that Wolf puts on occasionally, you'll see the type of motors they pulled out of there. Outstanding. Were they boat motors? Oh, yeah, yeah. Old oh, okay. Motors. They looked like one-lungers, but yeah. some of them had, like, brass exhaust pipes all the way down, brass props almost. And I, I had only got one out of there. And it still had gas in the tank because it was upside down. And you could still pull it, and it would start, not start, but it would rotate the prop. Wow. And it was it was interesting. I have no idea what I did with that, but it was a good show and tell item for many, many years. Very interesting. Well, Mac, do you have a uh, dive safety story for the week? Well, I have an interest. Well, I think it's interesting because I just made this one up here, but it's, it's pretty good. But I think everybody out there knows Murphy. and Or if you don't know Murphy by himself, you know Murphy's Law. The dive couple buddy. Of, yep. A couple of them go like this. If anything can go wrong, it will. And at the most inopportune time, and it will be your fault, and everybody will know it. There is a possibility of several things going wrong. The one that will cause the most damage will be the one to go wrong first. There is a possibility of several things going wrong. The one that will cause the most damage will be the first to go wrong. If anything can go wrong or cannot go wrong, it will anyway. If you perceive that there are four ways in which something can go wrong and circumvent these, then a fifth way, unprepared for, will promptly develop. It will be impossible to fix the, first, the fifth fault without breaking the fix on one or more of the others. Left to themselves, things tend to go from bad to worst. If everything seems to be going well, you have obviously overlooked something. Nature always sides with the hidden flaw. The hidden flaw never stays hidden for long, and the best laid plans sometimes go asunder. Now, I, I bring that up for another reason. I'm trying to find my regular post. Hang on one second for me. What I bring this up for is entanglements and fishing line, you know, old nets, electrical wires, trees, roots. You know, they're, they're just a matter of fact for blackwater divers, especially river divers. The assistance of a buddy diver can be invaluable in extricating yourself from an entanglement, but self-individual, self-rescue should be the first order priority. And this includes an attitude of defensive driving, uh, diving and an awareness, you know, of one's surroundings at all times. It suggested that you always have at least two sharp knives worn on your arm or chest area with an easy wrench, and that should be your standard grubbing gear. Dependent on the site and known hazards, having a pair of wire cutters capable of quickly cutting through such hazards as wire and, and cable are invaluable. Now, that macho-looking broadsword strapped to your calf doesn't do you much good if you can't wrench it or if it's sharp enough or not sharp enough to do the job. 
Now, most divers can easily cope with entanglements to snag you from the front. But have you thought about how do you deal with a wad of monofilament hung in your manifold where you can't see it and a snag on a tree? Without question, familiarization with your own equipment is you know, absolutely essential. Being able to remove it, meaning your gear, in a confined area to deal with a problem, then replace your gear may not be easy, especially if wearing large, bulky gloves and ice water. Now, getting untangled can take time and throw your air consumption and bottom time calculations out the window if you're not shallow. Now, that tangle of monofilament might be the one to catch you while you're exploring a wreck at 120 feet just before it was time to surface. Self-control, smooth, logical reactions to stress are survival tools not generally practiced enough by most divers. If you're thoroughly planning your dive, maintaining time and situational awareness, constantly using a healthy dose of common sense, um, and defensive diving skills, you will most likely be able to cope with most contingencies. It's rare that everything goes wrong at once, but it's nice to be prepared and have the confidence to implement safety plans quickly and efficiently. Training, experience, and anticipation for the unexpected mark the diver who will manage effectively when a stressful situation presents. Never expect things to go right, and you'll rarely be disappointed. Just remember... You know, Murphy, he dives too. <laughs> I kind of, uh, you're, you're saying that, and I envision, I, I remember seeing a cartoon, and it had to do with the gremlins. I think it was ba- World War II based, because it was uh, gremlins on a plane. And it might have been like an Air Force training video or something. But uh, good things to remember. Yeah, getting getting the gear off is, is one. I, I think I can get it off underwater. In fact, I, I feel pretty comfortable with that. Getting it back on can be a challenge I've, I've i've done it a few times and i don't know if i've actually done it in that with a dry suit though well i was reading this article i i actually do read occasionally and they were talking about items like we were last week talked about boat safety if we have somebody yeah. on the boat what do we do we talked about what do you do if the anchor's down and you the anchor drags what do you do well part of this discussion was saying you know thinking ahead because murphy's out there they said one of the items is a lot of people who go do a wreck dive, especially if it's going to be a deco, they have stage bottles, and you hang them on your anchor line just like we do. And he says, that's really good, but what happens when you come out of that wreck and you were tangled up and you are just out of gas and you realize that your anchor line has been moved because the boat's not there? What do you do now? And some of the different techniques these people use is from history, because it's happened to them, they take their stage bottles and put by the wreck where they're going in at with their lines. Because if they come back out and the anchor's gone, they still got their tanks. You know, I never thought about that. It's one of those, what do you do with the contingency plans? Yeah. Well, I can now, remember when, when, we do, when we dove Max Wreck that we used to put a, uh, a bottle there uh, right on the bottom. Now, it was on the, uh, the uh, mooring line, but if the mooring went away, the bottle would still be there. One thing I like to do, as far as you know, Max mentioned of the, uh, the the anchor and the boat going away, is if uh, I'm, I'm not recommending anyone else leaves their boat unattended, but I do from time to time. And if, if there's any kind of current or wind or any reason to think that boat's going to go away, could possibly go away, I will uh, run a reel from the uh, a minimum of running the reel from the anchor line to the wreck. I may run the you know keep the reel on my my person the entire time as well, depends upon where I'm at. 
which way the wind's going and all the different variables that add up to risk out there. But, you know, keep, keeping a, you know, a line connected between you and your anchor line, you and your boat, is probably a good idea out there, no matter what. Can't remember who had a story about the, uh, I think it was out there on Diamond Lake, and it was diving the South Bend, and mm-hmm. they had a line on the uh, anchor line, and they came up, and it's like uh, the boat was moving faster than almost they could keep up with the line. You talking about when Kirk and I were out there uh, oh, last summer? I don't remember who, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, I love my, I love that extra tagline. Yeah, Kirk, Kirk and I dove it uh, a year ago, and yeah, it was a, it was a little blustery out, not horrible, but enough that uh, yeah, I, I definitely ran ran the uh, reel to the uh, anchor line. And Kirk and I were swimming around down there, and it was one of my, you know, I haven't made a lot of dives on at that point. He's showing me the rack, and we're cruising around, and I get a tug on my reel, and uh, I give Kirk a tug, and like, you know, pointless going back, and he's like, nah, let's keep on going, you know, he didn't see the reel. And finally, I shoved the reel in his face, and you could see it just spooling out, just so, so bad it was going to backlash on you, you know, and, oh, yeah, <laughs> we went after the boat. And, you know, fortunately, you know, that, that wreck's only 35 feet deep. But uh, we couldn't catch the boat. It was actually spooling out faster than we could swim for it. So, uh, you know, fortunately, the anchor did come into some good weeds and got another hold again. But you know, by that point, the thing the boat had probably moved, uh, you know, three four hundred feet easy. Yeah, I I've, I haven't had it where it was going that quick. But there's been times I've gone back to the anchor and there's a little plow trench that's been dug about twenty thirty feet. Well, I suppose what we've been doing, talking about the boater safety, diver safety, what can happen, you know, Mr. Murphy out there or Ms. Murphy, it's like it, it just reinforces the uh, the observation to me is we need to be better when we're out there planning and when we're executing our dives, even when they're repetitious, shallow water like in the river. We need to really think about that a little more. Well, I look at it that anything, any aspect of your dive – which your life depends upon, you probably should have two. And when it comes to securing your boat, uh, the boat getting away from you when you're offshore could be a, you know, a life-altering event. So you should have two, an anchor and a boat watcher, or an anchor and a reel, or you know, at least have two ways of securing that boat. And you know, it's possible that both of them might fail on you. You know, yeah, your, your boat watcher might take a nap on you. Not likely, but could happen. You both, you know, both could get away, and the boat watcher can't can't start the boat for some reason. You know, um, but it's not likely to have both things fail on you. It's possible, but uh, always, you know, that's why we have that's why we have an octo. You know, your life can can depend upon having that second functioning regulator. That's why we dive deep. We bring a bailout with us. You know, it, uh, anything your life depends upon, it's worth having too. Well, Kevin, do you have a uh, wreck of the week you want to talk about? Yes, I do. Uh, I think today I'm going to talk about the Kamloops. The uh, Kamloops is a wreck which uh, is on many folks' bucket list. It's a pretty deep one up there in the uh, Isle of Royal National Park. I posted links in the uh, Discord chat for uh, both MichiganPreserves.org and also the uh, Wikipedia article on it. Uh, it is a rather deep wreck. You know, I've mentioned a few shallow ones from time to time. But the uh, Kamloops, uh, it depends what you're talking about, the bow or the stern. You're looking at anywhere from 180 
to uh, 260. Uh, this is a, a substantial wreck. It lies on its side. has quite a bit of penetration on it. Uh, when I understand, there actually still is a body on it to this day. I've heard it's been recovered. I've heard it hasn't been. I'm not quite sure. Maybe someone who's dove more recently could, can let can easily can let me know, but the Kamloops uh, the wreck, read to you off a Wikipedia page. Kamloops was dispatched up the lakes November 1927, carrying a mixed cargo, paper making machinery, rolled wire for fencing and other items. Uh, unfortunately, Kamloops and other vessels assigned to Lake Superior runs. A massive storm began hammering the lake late on, de- on five on December 5th. Kamloops' heavily coated ice was last seen seeming towards the southeastern shore of Isle Royal at dusk on the following day, December 6th. This is uh, 1927. Search of the vessel began on December 12th, concentrating on the Keweenaw Peninsula and Isle Royal. The search continued until 22nd December. However, the ship and the 22 men and women aboard were never seen never seen again alive. In the 1928 navigation season in April, a further search was made for wreckage from the Kamloops. In May, fishermen discovered the remains of several crew members at 12 o'clock point on Isle Royal. Erroneously reported to be the nearby Amagadoyle <laughs> Island. In addition, wreckage from the ship was discovered ashore. In June, more bodies were discovered, and a more comprehensive search for the wreck and crew members was undertaken, but nothing was found. Of the nine bodies recovered from the Kamloops, five were identified and the remains shipped to Mexican. Four remained unidentified and were buried at Thunder Bay. A memorial stone was placed over the grave site in 2011. Fifty years, Kamloops was one of the ghost ships of the Great Lakes, having sunk without a trace. However, in, on October 21, 1977, her work was discovered, her wreck was discovered northwest of Isle Royal, near now what is called Kamloops Point, by sport divers carrying out a systematic search for the ship. The wreck was discovered sitting on the lake bottom, under more than 270 feet of water, the ship is lying on its starboard side at the bottom of an underwater cliff. Cargo is strewn near the ship on the lake floor, and the hold still contain wire fencing, high-top shoes, candy lifesavers, and crates of honeybee molasses. There are still human remains aboard the ship. Approximately 50 dives were made to the Kamloops in 2009, out of 1,062 dives made to wrecks in the Isleville National Park. The cause of her sinking remained a mystery as of 2007. Uh, this is a very deep wreck. You know, we're talking up to 270 feet. It's not certainly a trimix dive for the very experienced. Uh, understand this is a magnificent wreck. It's one that uh, many folks bucket list. Certainly one that I'd like to see someday. Uh, if you're qualified, go for it. Now, Marvelous now, ship, Great Lakes. Yeah, when, when you're talking about that body earlier on, that was the one that was in the engine room, wasn't it? Correct. Yeah, yeah, because I know quite a few people who have... Uh, who have dove on that on that wreck? Uh, his name his name is Whitey, by the way. His name now is Whitey, or it always was Whitey. No, it was Whitey because he sort of. If you ever have you ever seen the pictures of him? John Steele dove that in 1978, and he did some really really good video, and I believe it was John's uh, video that captured him. They didn't really know it until they got out, and then they were looking at the video and realized, whoa, what's that off to the right? <laughs> and then they called them Whitey, and then of course there's legends, and he follows you around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard that basically just as a diver goes through the, uh, he's, he's, he's in the engine room, I understand. Yes, and you know because as you go through, you kind of create a bit of a of a drag behind you. He can kind of fall into that drag, 
and follow you around the engine room. So also, uh, he's been down there long enough now that he's kind of indiscernible. He's just kind of a kind of a lump enough, when I understand. Uh, I heard that he'd been removed. I heard that he hadn't. I don't know for certain. So yeah, I'd like I to know before I die. But. Yeah, I, I know Rich Sinowick. Uh, that's one of his regulars when he does his Isle Royal trip. Uh, that's Rich from Divers Inc. and Divers Incorporated. Uh, so if you want to go, I mean, he's always doing trips up there. And then you talked about the lifesavers. Didn't uh, Becky, was it her or Jitka that took the, the photos this year of those? I know they were both there. I'm not quite sure who took the photos, but uh, that I know they were posted on Great Lakes Trip Explorers, so probably it, was, it may have been Jitka's photos. Because yeah. those were beautiful. I mean, they, they, they were art in, them, in themselves. And uh, there was quite a discussion on the flavors because it's not the flavors that we're used to today. I think one of them was like clove flavored, and but uh, you could you could kind of date the wreck just by the lifesavers. Yeah, um, let's imagine all, all that candy is still lying there. I know that uh, one of the bodies that was found on the on the island following spring still had lifesavers in his hand. So. Imagine you get off the wreck with that. That's not going to sustain you for long. No. Yeah, that that's a bucket list dive, but that's one of those I don't know if I'm ever going to quite get that deep in that location. And that's a lot of preparation. That's a lot of gas. I mean, certainly designed for uh, uh, rebreather divers, and you want to be doing trimix at that at those levels. Yeah, that would certainly help. Um, yeah, trimix for certain. I'm wondering that you're talking about John Steele doing it in 1978. Uh, was he doing this on air? Yep. Yeah, that's that's in, <laughs> yeah. that's that's pre trimix. I mean, I mean, trimix was being used by Jacques Snow at that point, but it wasn't uh, being used by the public until the mid nineties. That would so, explain why he didn't see the body till later. Yeah, it would. Yeah, you're you're, would. So, you're so narked. You're just trying to keep track of your line. Yeah. He, he, well, the, the, he might have seen it, but certainly wouldn't remember it. You know. Knocked out of his mind at that depth on air. Wow, two seventy on air. Uh, scuba obsessed does not recommend uh, diving to that depth on air. No, <laughs> not no, a good idea. And you uh, figure that was a penetration wreck. Yeah, that's even. I mean, that's not just bouncing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I was thinking the same thing. It's not like uh, you know, he he just wanted to go down, touch the wreck, do a quick look, take some shots, and come back up. Well, I mean, you're down there, especially if you're to the point where you're. Getting video in the engine room because there there are technical divers who have dove in the wreck several times and haven't made it that far in. Well, and it's that's cold water too. You know, I mean, when you're talking to that kind of depth, that water's in the 30s year round. So, I mean, how, how many aspects do you need to say not for me? Wow, but I mean, him, him to do that on air, wreck uh, penetration, cold water, wow, and live to tell about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just finished off a book, uh, Walking the Deep Side, and talking about uh, a lot of the different things going on in the world of tech diving as uh, when Trimix was first coming in, coming around in the mid-90s, and uh, you know some of the stuff they were doing on here was, uh, you know, today we think is I mean, it's just insane. Even back then it was pretty questionable, but those guys were doing the stuff you know, in the Red Sea and warm water, where you can go you know, 150 100 meters and it's still water in the 70s. Not around here. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, no, cold water makes you more narked. You know, when you're at 270, you mean narked out of your mind. I mean, 
what was he driving diving for a blend? I mean, you think about it, uh, you know, you get tox on O2 at uh, 188 feet. So, you know, that there are, well, it's not accepted today, but back when people did deep air, you know, there were breathing techniques to, to minimize the toxin, but not at 270, that, that had to be unbelievably risky. But, hey, he did it. Got the pictures to prove it. I mean, to me, absolutely amazing. Well, Jim, you have, do you have anything you wanted to uh, plug or pitch before we end this? No, not this week. How about you, Mac? Nothing. Oh, I'm sorry. Nope. Uh, nothing new coming up, just uh, DEMA's in two weeks. So, Yep, DEMA Dive Equipment Manufacturers Association show down in Florida this time, which seems to be a good place for it. Uh, Round trip, Allegiant Air, $165. There you go. Mm. My daughter just got back. That's how come I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I had some uh, some frequent flyer miles all saved up to go to DEMA one time, and uh, work hadn't sent me anywhere in a while. And, you know, those nasty airlines, you, you don't add any more uh, minutes to the bucket or miles to the bucket. They uh, kill everything. So I'm back at ground zero with my my miles mm, not cool no not i didn't cool at all. i didn't think so because i i had probably two or three flights saved up and it was you know just for this type of a, an event but uh, use it or lose it mm-hmm. you got anything you want to plug kevin yeah so i'd like to encourage our listeners to uh you try to patronize your local dive shops we all like to get those bargains online but the bargains online are going to do scuba tanks or service your regulators also continue to support your local libraries there is a wealth of knowledge in there, which uh, you cannot find on the internet. So uh, please continue to support your local libraries. And, and I got it for you. And Mac, I think we, we talked over you. Was there anything you wanted to plug? Nope, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Which it is about that time, isn't it? It is. And uh, I, I've got one. At th- th- this week I've got it on my phone, so we'll see. I don't, I don't maybe from the different location it will look a little better. So here we go. Uh, two divers were sitting on the side of their boat uh, just off the coast of Florida after a dive, cooling their feet in the sea. Suddenly an enormous shark came up and bit one of the divers' legs. The shark's just bit my leg off, he yelled. Which one, asked his friends. I don't know. When you see one shark, you've seen them all. That's a cool customer. All right. All right. So, on that note, go out there and get what? And stay safe. And have a good time doing it. And remember, no sharks were harmed in the making of tonight's show, but one diver did lose his leg. <laughs> oh, yeah. think that was from being pulled out. Oh, courting has been completed. <laughs> Don't pull my leg. <laughs> yeah.